Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Anyway, Matthew 16, Laura, if you'd lead us in this passage. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked um, his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning genuinely with gratitude in our hearts. And also on our lips, we just say, God, thank you. The key word there is you. Our hope today is you. The only rock that we can build on is you. And so we've come back to you today, Jesus, together with a desire to truly live that out. You're building your church. You're building our lives. And Jesus, we want to build on you. And so God, um, this morning as we have your word open, We pray that you would do that work of grace. Just bring a grace upon us by your spirit to have our hearts open, our our lives open, our minds open. Free from the distractions of, of whatever might creep into our minds in a time like this. Jesus, would you set us free to focus on you and to receive what you want to give us today? We just invite you to work in this time. This is your time. Lord, um, this is about you, so help us center around that. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to mightily and clearly speak to each one of us today. That's our, our prayer, God, that you would, you would truly minister to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All righty. For the better part of this year... Our church has been walking through the New Testament epistle, the letter from the first century, written to the church at Ephesus. It's called the book of Ephesians. It's six chapters of some of the most encouraging words that any pastor could ever give to a church. And we have been taking the scenic route, the few detours along the way, such as today, making our way through this incredible book that's inspired by God for our benefit and ultimately for our growth in Christ. Um, The big theme of the book of Ephesians, I know we're in Matthew, we'll get there in a second, but the big theme of the book of Ephesians is this idea of life in Christ. Life in Christ. This is what Paul has been leading us to explore. Um, Basically, it's it's a central understanding about the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus that has changed our lives. Amen? The gospel of Jesus that has transformed our lives uh, beyond a message about being rescued from sin and beyond being a message about being reconciled to God, the gospel is also about a repositioning in Christ. We're reconciled from some things, we're, or excuse me, we're rec- rescued from some things, we're reconciled to God, but we've also been in Christ, Paul would say this, repositioned in him. And, and that two-letter simple preposition makes all the difference When we live according to it, when we truly live from this position we've received in Jesus. And that's truly the Christian life, not something to live for primarily as much as something to live from. Amen. You with me? So this is what Ephesians is exploring. Ephesians is exploring kind of the different aspects of life in Christ, all the different areas of being positioned in him. And as we've gotten to the end of chapter five, uh, Paul has been leading us to explore this topic. It's the topic of soulless in Christ. I mean, genuinely, this is what he's led us to explore. 
Each week is a different aspect of life in Christ. I mean, we've looked at marriage in Christ. We've looked at, at wisdom in Christ. And chapter 5 is this interest. At the end of chapter 5, there's this interesting um, picture that is a portrait of two things at once. Paul is talking about the, the healthy, a healthy marriage between a husband and wife ultimately existing to mirror, to be a picture of a greater relationship between Christ and his church. And that's who we are. We as solace are the church. And that's what we're exploring. Uh, we've taken a little detour here to dive a little deeper into this idea. Again, as Paul's leading us to reflect on solace in Christ. Like, it's, it's nice. We said this last week. Anytime God has something to say to us about us, it's, it's always good. Sometimes it's scary. It's like, God, what do you have to say to me about me? Okay. But, but when we're talking about the church, we're talking about good news that he has to say to us about us about who we are, soulless, as the church in him. And so this study that we're doing, it's going to be done next week, kind of this little mini-series within a series. It's going to get more and more granular each week. So we had a big zoomed-out look at the church last week. That's what Paul led us to see in Ephesians 5. Uh, last week, we began with this zoomed-out ex- uh, kind of explanation of this question and this idea. Last week, we asked the question, who are we? Who are we as soulless? Let's start there. That's where we started last week. Uh, The question was uh, around our identity. Like, how should we think about ourselves as a group of people gathered at Don Estridge Middle School right now, gathering in homes, gathering at ministry centers, gathering in coffee shops? Who are we? What does God have to say to us about who we are? And we established this really powerful idea last week. Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 this idea about the local church being a local expression, this is who we are, solace, we are a local expression of something larger, right? We're a local expression of God's eternal, diverse, and universal family. This is such a cool thought. That as a church, we're not just this isolated group of people trying to get some things done, but we exist as an expression of something much bigger than any one of us, and even much bigger than all of us. We exist as this expression of this forever family. That's how Paul describes the church there in Ephesians. And and we establish kind of what theology would would give us. Basic theology teaches that there's really like two ways to think about the church. There's almost like two planes that the church exists on, or two dimensions even. It's very Christopher Nolan. It's very deep. Check this out. The church exists on both a universal reality and a local reality. Paul has spoken first about the universal reality of the church. Um, and, and that's what we see in Revelation, don't we? At the, end of, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see the church of Jesus, but it's not divided up according to locational demographics. The, the church isn't divided up into denominational disagreements, nor is the church divided up into cultural divisions. In, in Revelation... What's really beautiful is the church and all her diversity brings all of her glory into the new heavens and new earth. We don't cease to be who we are. We don't leave the culture of the earth behind and come together as this monolithic, you know, one color, one language people. But heaven displays the reality of this diverse but unified big family. Um, Now, what Paul is teaching us is that as a local church, we exist as an expression of that. It's really cool. I think we tend to overemphasize one of the other naturally. Don't we do that? Like, you know, the Bible also talks about the local church. So, you know, there's the, in, all throughout the epistles, Paul writes to the church in, in people's homes. Like, that's the, like at some churches, it wasn't, it wasn't as gnarly as middle schools. It was home. Like, we're the church in Don Estridge. If we got the epistle, it'd be like, to the church in the Don Estridge Middle School, you know? But there's the church in homes. There's the church in cities. There's the church in regions in a locational sense. And and, you know, with that balance, sometimes we can make too much of the local thing, like too much of it. We forget about the eternal global thing. And, and we sort of think of ourselves and ourselves alone. And we have this, like, competitive business mindset that, we, that can creep into the church. Or we have this, like, comparison thing. It's not healthy because it's not eternal. The eternal family of God is not made up of these cultural divisions. We can be too locally minded. And we think that we're the only church in Boca or the only church in Florida or the only church even here in Boca. But on, the other sa- on the other hand, like the flip side, there's also a danger of being too far on the other end. 
where maybe you're not emphasizing or focusing on the local component, you're focusing more on the universal component, largely because of how difficult your experience with the local thing has been. Anybody ever been to church before? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, good. And, and so you have a lot of, listen, because life within the context of the local church is hard. It's, I'm not talking about leading one. I'm, I'm talking about being in one. It's, it's messy. It's difficult. Like to covenant together with other people that you're going to, like they're going to disagree with you. They're going to be a little, they're, they're going to have like some rough edges that you don't prefer in certain kinds of people that you would naturally avoid. And God's like, do life together. That local thing is messy. It's difficult. And I don't want to undermine the reality that in large part, the enemy has used a lot of the brokenness of the local church, of Christians, to drive other Christians away from the church. A lack of trust, a lack of security. We preach grace, but we don't practice it. We say things like, God welcomes you as you are. He loves you. But then we kind of naturally, culturally, maybe create these expectations that I can't really share what I'm struggling with or I can't really share how I feel. So whether it's church hurt or, man, the other side of this is, is just like record pastoral failure and mismanagement of ministry. The enemy has been active in giving people every reason not to be a part of the beautiful, messy family of God. And so there's a tendency to be like, I like the universal idea of the church. That's really popular, isn't it? It's like, bro, we don't, we don't need to go to church, man. Bro, grab your ukulele. Let's get down to the beach, all right? We are the church, bro. Okay. And maybe that's just kind of, again, this facade of, like, I'm afraid of commitment. I'm afraid of, of being honest or whatever it may be. I wonder what it is for you. Maybe that's something to talk about. What are some of the things that have kept you from being a part of the family that you've been born into through the gospel? Right? That's our conviction. Uh, that's our conviction even about this idea called membership, you know. Uh, wherever that goes, for us, we have a conviction about membership. We don't think membership is a bad word. It's actually a biblical word. It's the word that the scriptures use to describe the members of the family of God or the members of the body of Christ. The idea is like we need each other and we're a part of the same thing. And so our conviction as a church is, is simply this. And we, we encounter people all the time that are figuring out if Solus is going to be their church or is it another church. And here's, at the end of the day, here's the conviction. Every Christian is a member of the body of Christ through the gospel. Whether you're functioning as one, or, as one or not, you are a member of the body in Christ. So that's our conviction. Every Christian is a member of the body and is called to function as such within the context of a local church. It's why you've been born into the family of God, not to show up to your family reunion, you know, twice a year, but to be a functioning member of God's family. And so this is what scripture gives us. We see this, right? So we're zooming in a little bit more today. We see that there's a big picture regarding the universal church, but there's also this kind of, this, this other dimension. It's a local reality of the church that exists in times and places and cultures. I love the diversity of the local church. There's not any one local church in South Florida to reach South Florida, amen? There's not any one local church in Boca Raton to reach Boca Raton. There's the beauty of that family is displayed in all the different local churches with their own languages and cultures and, and things that the Spirit of God is up to. Um, but that's what we want to zoom into. As we think about Solus, who we are, as this local expression of the church, let's shift to this next question. The first question was, who are we as Solus? Let's ask this next question, which is, why are we? Which reminds me of, of Drax from the Avengers movie. Where is Gamora? I'll, better you, you know, I'll do you one better. Who is Gamora? Then he goes... I got one better. Why is Gamora? Now, um, funny Drax. Okay. Andrew, why was that in your notes? You actually thought to say that in the sermon. Let me just delete. Sorry. I'm just, give me a second. Deleted that. Okay. Um, I thought of that. Um, as we zoom in on who we are as a local church, Solus, we want to ask the question, why are we here? 
Here we are. In all of our beauty, in all of our messiness, as this local expression, one of many local expressions here in South Florida of the forever family of God because of Jesus. Why are we here? What are we doing? Isn't that a good question to ask every now and then? Especially in the church, because we're like pumping out services every Sunday. We're setting up. We're tearing down. We have all this vision, these ministries. We're doing alpha. It's like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Why are we here? Now, I also want to give a, a precursor. In case you're wondering like where the first, second, and third point are, there's none of that today. Okay? There's just points. It's like points. All right? Ideas. All right? By the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay. Still with me. You know, when you begin to ask this question, why is the church? Why is Solus here? Why, why did God call even a small group of this of us six years ago to begin to seek him when he was leading us to start a new church here in Boca? Like, why are we here? Now, I want to say that there's a lot of answers you could give to this. And sometimes the church fails to see all of her calling in a local context. We could become reductionistic. And we could focus on one thing over against other things. And, and so I'm not going to concern our, uh, myself and us today with the fine details of all the different things that a church is called to do. Because here's what, especially if you spend some time in church, here's the reality of this. We all have a different idea about what solace should be doing right now and how they should be doing it. And it's largely based off of your background mega church experience. Okay, next point. When I ask the question, why are we, and we open God's word, and we open our hearts to Jesus, and we present ourselves, we're like, Jesus, this is your church. We're asking the question, not just what are we here to do, but we're asking God, why are we ultimately here? What's the ultimate reason for our existence? What's the ultimate purpose for our church? And you can jot this, hey, jot this point down, all right? Jot this idea down. This is what we see from our scripture reading. The church of Jesus exists for an ultimate, notice this, kingdom purpose. This is found, we're going to get, you know, like on a Google Doc, when you can like increase the percentage and zoom in every more, like, okay, you know what I'm talking about? You can like zoom in on it? All right. That's what we're going to do throughout this message. We're going to continue to zoom in. So we're at uh, 75% here, okay? The church of Jesus exists, here's the first idea as we kind of move closer, Scripture teaches that the church of Jesus, solus exists for, for, for a purpose greater than any one of us, and even a purpose greater than any one denomination. Solus exists, the church exists for a greater kingdom of God purpose. Uh, the church exists not for any earthly kingdom, amen? The church doesn't exist to build some sort of earthly version of God's kingdom. The church exists for the kingdom of God, an ultimate kingdom purpose. It's been said before that, that, that the church of Jesus doesn't have a mission for the kingdom, but the kingdom of God's mission has a church. Like we exist for something greater. And, and this is what we see here in Matthew 16 in the passage that we read. As Jesus is in a dialogue with his disciples about his divinity and identity. It's a great conversation. <laughs> He's like, hey, guys, I'm trending. What are people saying? All right. What's the word on the street about me? What do, who do men think that I am? He's having a conversation. And, and, they, and, of course, as culture often does, they give the cultural views of Jesus, which are often truncated views of Jesus, like parts of him but not the whole. And we can all do this. We settle for a part of Jesus that we prefer rather than the whole entirety of who he is as the great I am. And he asked them, what are men saying about me? And they give these partial views. And he asked Peter. Well, he actually asked the whole crowd. He says, uh, his disciples, who do, what about you? And Jesus will ask every single one of us. It's great if we have the cultural hot take about what people think about Jesus. At the end of the day, Jesus will look us dead in the eye and say, what about you? As you look him in the eye, who is he to you? And Peter says, well, inspired by the Spirit of God, he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. These versions of you might make up some descriptions of you, but I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Messiah, the sent one of God. who's come to take away the sin of the world. Now, now Jesus, 
in hearing this, in this dialogue with his disciples, he then makes a, a very powerful point about that truth regarding the kingdom and the church. Keep following me here. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, let's stop for a second. There's a lot of debate around what is the rock that Jesus is preferring to, promising to build on. Is it Peter, like he's the pope and he's the one of many and they're going to build on him? Um, is Peter one of many rocks? Like we're all like, you know, rocks in God's rock family, you know? And we all make up a different part of the temple. Um, I'm convinced with, with the approach that, that uh, Jesus is telling Peter that the rock he's going to build on is the truth about who he is. On this rock that you just proclaimed, Jesus, uh, Jesus says this, I will build my what? One more time, I will build my church. It's the first time Jesus is making mention of his church. Notice what he says. This is cool. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus is like, I'm building something that whatever you think of as like the most destructive force in the universe, it's the gates of Hades. It's, it's hell itself. Hades doesn't even stand a chance to stop what I'm going to do through my church. In fact, he, he says the phrase, the gates of Hades won't prevail. He doesn't say Hades won't prevail. <laughs> he describes Hades as this like, from a, a defensive standpoint, that's what gates do. They keep people out, right? We live in Boca. We know about this, right? So, like, Jesus is like, the gates of Hades will not prevail defensively against the offensive force of the church. So, maybe it's an understatement to say the church exists for a kingdom purpose. Jesus is like, no, it's, it's so much more than that. The church exists as an unstoppable force of the kingdom to push back on the gates of hell. The church exists to wreak havoc on hell. Jesus says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is where the kingdom language comes in. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. It's likely that these keys refer to a lot of, um, lot of um, conversation and debate about this. Um, I'm convinced these keys represent the, the way that the gospel is able to be unlocked into all the nations. So I'll give you the keys, and you'll take this from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The idea there is that this, the kingdom of God is going to spread through the gospel. Now, this isn't new news. Like, if up to this point, you've been, you know, you've been following Jesus, you know, you watch all his stories, you like all his photos, like, you're fo like following him. If you're, like, following his life, at this point, you've heard Jesus talk about the kingdom. This is like why he's there, you know? He's like, I am here as the king that's bringing the kingdom. And you've seen it before your eyes. You've seen Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand. It's arrived. And then you've seen Jesus touch an untouchable leper. The sinner. The outcast. And you've seen the kingdom of God restore what the kingdom of darkness destroyed. And this is the Gospels, right? Everywhere Jesus is going, he's bringing light to darkness. And he's like, the kingdom's breaking in. The enemy doesn't win. Destruction doesn't have the final say. Sin doesn't have the last word. Because the king is here. And he's here to extend and advance the kingdom. He said so much about the kingdom. Like up until this point, especially Matthew, it's like kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And now we begin to see a shift happening where the rest of the New Testament has a lot to say about the kingdom of God, but the focus is now on the church. Jesus here makes a connection between what's happening in the world with the kingdom to what God is going to do through the church. Are you following me? So, so Jesus connects the church as this community that exists for a higher kingdom purpose. The kingdom of God is going to go from Jerusalem to Boca. Praise the Lord. Praise God. That God's kingdom is going to spread in universities. That the church, we're like the custodians of this kingdom with keys. And we bring the gospel into spaces it hasn't been before. We bring light where there's darkness. It's amazing. Now, this is amazing. But there's more to the story. And we should be grateful. 
because we need more. <laughs> like, this is a great description of what God's up to, but it does lack detail, you know? Okay, well, all right, get your keys. What is the church here? Get your keys. Go church. It's like, it's poetic and beautiful. And uh, now, let's just say, it would make for some cool mission statements. Like, if this is all we had, we'd be like, we are the custodians of the kingdom, unlocking doors for the kingdom. Of, you know, like, it could be, what are you guys here to do? We're here to push back on the gates of hell. What's up? That's good. You feel like connect card? You know? Um, what Jesus is doing here is what he often does with the disciples and he does with us too and it's kind of tough but this is what he does he gives us as much revelation as he knows we need at the time he knows we need it you ever face that with the Lord it's like God I need more he's like well you can seek me you ask, you'll receive, and if you seek, you'll find, but you'll find what I will to reveal to you, knowing that I know what you need. Maybe right now you're in the place of life where you're praying for God to give you more revelation, and he's like, well, well, look at what I've already showed you first, and see if maybe I've given you more than you think you have in what I've already spoken. That's what he's doing with the disciples. He's given them as much revelation as he knows they need. And this is how he often has to teach them. I mean, <laughs> in large part, it's because they have like a spiritual learning disability. And they just can't get it all at once. <laughs> They're like me. And so, so Jesus is like giving them a little bit at a time. He can't give them the whole like, you're going to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. You're going to give your life. You're going to die. You're going to like plant churches. And in the churches, you're gonna, you have discipleship structure. Like, he's like, let's just like, okay. Kingdom of God, church, it's going to spread. It's going to be awesome. Keys the gospel okay now we see this because a few chapters later let's say about a year or so later Jesus is going to give the disciples a little bit more so he's going to zoom in on the dock okay we're still we're still using that idea let's see how how much longer we use that okay in Matthew 28 Jesus has died he's been buried this is post gospel he's been resurrected Christ has atoned for the sins of the world. Christ has accomplished the great work of God in coming to this earth and bearing on his own shoulders the sins of humanity to reconcile us back to God. The good news is available. So now that good news of the kingdom is going to go out through the church. And so in Matthew 28, we see Jesus is going to give the disciples a little bit more intel, a little bit more intel. Here's a little bit more info as to what I'm up to. It tells us that the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And I just love the community of faith, but some doubted. But he didn't say, doubting ones, leave, okay? If you're a doubting one, please stand up, okay? No, exit the room. He doesn't do that. I love, too, that, like, it doesn't say how many of them were doubting, how many of them were worshipping either. Probably a little bit of both, right? They're, they're, they're processing what's happened. They went from grieving to now going, oh, I, I got to get into hope mode. And sometimes your, your, heart and, your heart doesn't always catch up with that right away. You know what I'm saying? So they're like, they're catching up to hope. And they're thinking about this. And they're worshiping him. They're like, I mean, I'm, he's there in front of me. I don't know if I believe it, but I see him. I'm going to worship him. Some doubted. Jesus came and spoke to, I love this, all of them. Every last one of us, wherever our faith finds itself today, those of us who have put faith in Christ. I love Tim Keller's reminder that it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, it's the object. I love that. You know, it's not how, it's not a, how much you trust in the strength of the branch you're, you're standing on, it's how strong the branch is. So you can have little faith, even the size of what? A mustard seed. But if it's in the right object, that faith will save you. We see Jesus displaying that. He brings them together. And he says to them, what a statement here. The only man in the history of the world who has ever, who will ever, who can ever say this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's some men throughout history that have been deceived to think that they have all authority on heaven and even or just on earth, which they don't. 
But Jesus is able to say, I have all, there's no authority, there's no rule, no power, there's no sovereign throne higher than mine. I'm higher than all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm at the very top. In light of that truth, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He's speaking to his disciples. He's like, you know what you are? You know, you know what's happened here? It's been a great three years. Isn't it been awesome? Okay, now I'm alive. The good news is true. People need to hear it. It's for the world. Go, move your feet, get active. And here's the vision. Make disciples of all the nations. This global vision that goes back to Matthew 16. The whole world as disciples of Jesus. This is his vision. Isn't that crazy? Jesus has a, has a universal vision, listen, of the church. Sound familiar? So here's Jesus, okay, by the way, being prophetic about his church. Prophetic. Speaking something with confidence as if it's in the future, as if it's happening right now. Like this is, by the way, this is, if you were like the guy that's like, I'm going to snuff, man, I am here to get rid of Christianity, okay? I am the gates of hell. What's up? I am here, and I'm going to fight against the work of God through Christ, and so here's how you discredit Jesus. You just go, well, didn't Jesus claim that the disciples were going to go make disciples of all nations? Didn't he, you know what I'm saying? Like, didn't, actually, he said in Mark 13 that his gospel was going to be preached in the whole world. That's what he said. And so, you know, as Gamaliel, the first century rabbi, said, if the Christian faith is not of God, it's going to fizzle out like every other trend in culture. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the Dougie and planking and Soldier Boy, like all the cultural things that kind of get popular and phase in and phase out, and then it kind of comes back around again. Oh, it's cool again, you know, like dress like you're from the 90s, you know, that's like cool again. Like that's just trendy. And, and Gamaliel's like, if, if Jesus is just trending, he'll, he'll fizzle out. But if Jesus is really alive from the dead, no one will be able to stop the global spread of the kingdom of God through the church. Did you hear that? One of the greatest evidences today for the resurrection is the enduring testimony of God's people who say, I know he's alive because he's alive in me. And he's changed my life and he's building his church. I cannot help but testify to who he is. It's evidence to him. And look, can I say something? This is history. No single individual throughout the history of the world has had a greater impact on the world than the person of Jesus. No one. No one even compares. I mean, we live in a culture of big people. Big personalities. Let's keep that door closed. But we live in a culture of big people. Of polarizing figures all throughout the world. Nothing. No one compares to Jesus. Jesus says, you're going to go, and here's what he says, you're going to make disciples. The church is going to go, and it's going to spread to all nations. I got some really cool facts for you about what Jesus said was going to happen that has happened. It was over 2,000 years ago that Jesus said that. Today, there are roughly 4,700 languages that people speak to praise the name of Jesus in. Isn't that remarkable? 4,700, 4,765 uh, 4, languages that praise the name of Jesus today. It's been estimated that there, right now, there are around 80,000 new Christians every day. Isn't that cool? You see God building his church? You see Jesus being true and every other man can be a liar because Jesus is true and he's alive and he's doing what he said he would? And I know we can look at that number and we go, 80,000 new Christians, like, that's not my neighborhood, like, what? I mean, you, you look at the polls of what's happening in the U.S., you look at the numbers of uh, Pew Research stuff that shows uh, the, the next generation and their absence from the local church, I think tracing back to a lot of the things that we said earlier. We see like a personal faith in Jesus alone is even kind of dwindling. It's like, well, where does this number come from? Well, two things. Number one, I have hope in Jesus to bring revival to our land again. I believe that that's possible because with God, all things are possible. And historically, anytime you see kind of the, the waters of faith recede, it's usually building up for fresh renewal. And I think, 
I think the dominant like, way of secularism in our culture is going to do all its bad work and cause people to say, I need something more. And, I, and I'm, I'm praying for that. And we're here to model that. Amen? That in a world that's trying to find their own identity, their own purpose, we have the best news of all that's endured 2,000 years, that God created you, he loves you, he died on the cross for you, he has a purpose for your life, and he, he knows you. And I think that's, I believe that, I should say, and I want that to be true in our context. Maybe we need to want it more. Maybe we need to want it more. To want God to move in our lives first, right? Um, but, but that's true. But I also want to say, like with that number, 80,000 people every day, like we're praying for that here. But can I also remind us that America, like there's not a verse in the Bible that says like, the center of my work in the world is going to be the United States of America. You know, if you want to know what God is up to in the world, just look at American politics and culture. I know we'd love to be able, you know, for that to be true. But the data says otherwise. And so you have places like Africa, where in 100 years, Africa has gone from 7% to 52% Christian in a century. That's unbelievable. In terms of population, it's remarkable. Um, in 1949, China is another great example of this. There were less than 1 million Protestant Christians in China. Less than a million. Today, there's over 58 million Christians in China. Uh, I have a friend that serves Jesus over uh, on the Asian continent there. She's in China. And the testimonies of how God works behind the scenes of the government eye, um, it, it's been estimated that there are um, around 2,000 believers added to the church every hour in China. Wow. Wouldn't that be cool for that to be said about America? 2,000 new believers in Jesus added every hour. That only comes out of a culture contending for that and really wanting that. Um, this is what Jesus said. He, he said, my church, he gives this, now remember, he's giving a universal vision. And this is why Jesus is true. He, he said again, the gospel is going to be preached in the whole world. And what's amazing is 2,000 years later, he was right and it has. And it's still advancing. So he tells the disciples, that's what's going to happen. You're going to go, therefore, you're going to make disciples of all the nations. But then again, here he goes. He zooms in a little bit more. We're zooming in a little bit more. And Jesus gives both at the same time a vision for his global church. But he also gives a vision for the local church. He says, as you go into all the world, as this gospel is going to preach to all nations... Here's what the local church is going to look like. You're going to go and you're going to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're going to, you're going to teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is, as a church planner and leader, that's the most encouraging verse, I think, in the Bible. He's like, just do it. I'm with you. I'm like, okay. And as Christians, when you seek to be on mission for God, when you seek to orient your life around the kingdom, what you're, can I tell you what you're doing? You're positioning yourself to be helped by God in the primary thing that he's up to in the world and the primary thing he cares about. That's pretty cool. He's like, I'm with you in this. This is what I'm up to. Now, Jesus, again, gives a vision of the local church. Here's how I would summarize it. Jesus describes what I think is his vision of what a local church is and why it is. Why it is. Jesus describes a local church as like this community of baptized believers that are learning to live in the way of Jesus together as, as disciples. That's the local church, as we zoom in a little bit more. Here's the local church. Um, they're, they're marked by their salvation in Christ. We talked about that last week. That's what makes us a church. There's the, there's the visible church where it's like, we're here, we must be the church. It's like, well, no. You, know, you heard in youth group growing up that being in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? Or a hammer or something. Um, I lost my train of thought because I'm like, what? That was funny, but weird. Um, you've heard that. And that's true of the church as well. That there's the invisible family of God that's made up. We're locally to, to, uh, to really display God's salvation in our lives. And baptism is the evidence of that. I can't wait to celebrate the evidence of God's work next week. Amen? 
We're going to celebrate the, this, this great reminder that God is mighty to save and salvation is of the Lord. That he's still saving, he's still rescuing, he's still restoring, he's still calling people to himself. And he's doing it effectively. His grace is leading people to transformation. And we're going to celebrate that next week. And, and Jesus is like, that's his vision of a local church. It's this community of people who have been redeemed. They've displayed that to the world through baptism. But they exist now as that community. Here's his vision to learn a way of life together. This is his vision of the church. When we talk about the fact that you and I who are saved, we've been called to function as a member of the body of Christ, we're talking about a vision of this. This is what you and I are called to be about. He doesn't say, you know, go into all the world and make converts exclusively. Fill the room. Add the numbers. You know, get people to make decisions. I'm all for that. Like, I'm all for passionate evangelism. We need to call the world to relationship with Jesus. But Jesus has, like, a vision for evangelism being a means to something else. That, that those who come to Christ, they now exist as a family centered around Jesus. That's the church. And we exist as a community that's learning to live in his way together. Go make disciples, he says. That's his vision of your and my life together. That solace would be this community of, notice the phrase there, disciples, right? Like a disciple is literally a learner. It's kind of interesting. The Greek word used for make disciples is where we get our modern word for mathematics. Okay. Or in the UK, they call it maths. I think that's kind of cool. All right. And the idea is like, I mean, I almost said like being a family that's a year into homeschooling. I, I almost said that then I was like, I need to give Brittany all the credit for that because like, I can't say like after a year of homeschooling my children. Um, but after a year of homeschooling, what we've learned is like math needs to be taught. And for it to be learned, you have kids that need to want to be taught. And that's where, pray for us. So, but this, I love it. That's the word that's used of what, what we're here for. There's nobody in this room that can just stand up and claim, I know and follow and go the way of Jesus without any help from anyone else. No, I'm a humble learner. I know the way I naturally go. I know the way I naturally think. And I've been saved from that. We talked about that last week. And I've been saved to follow Jesus. Because his way is better than my way. Amen? Like his way, I believe this, is better than my way. But I can just say that. But if I don't pursue that, I'm not going to go his way. I've got to learn his way. I've got to come under him as a disciple. It's what we are. It's why we're here. We're not here for information. We're here for transformation. We're not here to follow a preacher or a movement. We're here to follow Jesus who saved us and has called us to himself. And he said, come, follow me. I have something better for you. That's his vision for the church. A community of disciples who are like, this is what our lives are about because you're not just Savior, Jesus. You're also Lord. You're the Lord of my life. Listen. This vision that Jesus gives, it's beautifully fleshed out, and I pray it's true of our church as well. It's beautifully fleshed out in the book of Acts, where, where you have the first ever local church in Acts 2. The first ever local church. 3,000 people get saved. They're added to the church, not just universally, but locally. And the scripture tells us that these, uh, Peter's preaching the gospel and he invites them to respond to the good news of Jesus by saying, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, far off and as many as our Lord God would call. What an invitation. With many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation and those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, I want you to see what makes verse 41 have its power. It's verse 42. And they, those baptized believers, here's the church, here's why we are here, they continued steadfastly 
and the apostles' doctrine. You could summarize the apostles' doctrine as both the word of God and the gospel of God. Marinating on the good news of Jesus, diving into God's word in fellowship. They did life together. In the breaking of bread, coming to the, the, the table together. And in prayer, seeking the Lord together. It says that they continued steadfastly. This is Jesus' vision for us individually and for us collectively. We have been rescued by Jesus, listen, to center our lives around him together. Um, This isn't a church, let let me say it this way. This isn't a community of people here in Acts 2 that are at the end of their weeks, at the end of their priorities saying, how now can I fit Jesus into my life? That's antithetical to what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus taught like some hard truth about this. Like anybody that came to Jesus with that approach, like Jesus, how's it going? Like here's the dresser drawer of my life. I'm going to give you a drawer. You get a drawer. I'll give you the top drawer. There's people that came to Jesus like that all the time. Like, I want Jesus, I want, to, I, I want you on my own terms, which is back to the garden. Jesus, I want you on my own time. Jesus, I want you, it's like, I want you in my life, but I don't want you truly at the center of my life because of what that will cost me. I mean, that'll cost, that'll cost my Sunday mornings, you know? It's like really good brunch time on a Sunday morning. It's like sleep in. It's going to cost maybe like a midweek evening. It's going to cost my boldness at work. It's going to cost the consequences of me confessing my secret sin. It's going to cost me enduring things that I want to quit, like relationships and marriages. It's much easier to just say, Jesus, be a part of my life. But because Jesus loves us oh so much, he, is, he will not let us settle for that. He loves you too much to settle for some abbreviated version of discipleship. That is no different than your life prior to Christ. It just has added Jesus on top. Because he's Savior and Lord, and Lord. See, discipleship is not something we add to our salvation. Like, I've been saved, but now it's like, I think, I've been saved for a little bit, like, been like a, like a born-again Christian. And I was thinking, like, this year, maybe I'll, like, add discipleship, like, every now and then. You know? And we treat it like that. Like, according to Scripture and Jesus, discipleship is what you step into when you come to Jesus. You get that? It's like a doorway. Salvation, you come to him, and, he, and, and whenever people come to him, and they're like, hey, I want to follow you, but on my own terms, he's like, well, that's not going to work. Because that's not the best, that's not the abundant life I have for you. So you have people like the rich young ruler going away sorrowfully. Because they wanted Jesus peripherally in their life. They wanted him maybe like generally visible, but not central. And, and this is what the gospel calls us out of. And discipleship is what Jesus calls us into. I'll invite the band up as we close with this last verse. Jesus says this to all of us. He says... And, and also, I want you to, like, make sure when you, we should do this more often, like, pay attention to the temperament of Jesus when he says this. A lot of times, we have a certain, like, face in our mind of Jesus when he says his word. And it's either the face of our father or it's the face of some version of Jesus that we have settled for. But I want you to see the son of God who's come to give his life for those who are lost, who without him would be lost forever who saw us in our sin, he sees us in our dysfunction, he sees our mismanaged priorities, he sees the brokenness he gives, and he looks on at us who, who want to continue to bargain with God and sort of settle for some fake version, and he, and he looks at us in love with compassion. He says, if anyone desires to be my disciple, let him, take, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Look at the call there. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This isn't bad news. This is what you and I have been waiting for. 
You were created to live. And that life is on the other side of your death. That life is on the other side of you saying, Jesus, you're my life. You're the whole thing. You're not a piece. You're not a part. Paul says, when Christ, our life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. So why don't you close your eyes here in this moment and begin to meditate on this and think about this. His vision for us as a church is that we're a community of people that have been saved to discipleship, saved to centering our lives around him and following him. He loves us enough to not settle for some abbreviated version that tries to fit him into the busyness. Before you think about all the things you need to do to be better, (laughs) remind yourself that it's still his love. It's his love calling you. It's his love forgiving you. It's his love offering you more. And it's his love that casts out all fear and makes us come close and say, God, I want you at the very center of my life because you're worth it all. So let's take a moment here in the presence of God to just evaluate, Jesus, are you at the center of our lives? Jesus, how how many other things have crept in there? Give us a grace even now, God, to repent meaningfully, genuinely. To push aside those other things, to say, God, we, we renounce those other things. We renounce, God, a a way of following you that's not of you, and we want to receive you, Jesus, in a fresh way today. So that times of refreshing will come to the